Hello and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Tom Potter, founder of Eagle Boys Pizza and more recently author, public speaker and non-executive director. It's nice to have you along for another Arate podcast. And I'm really excited about today's episode. I've known Tom Potter for a number of years now, and uh, I find him an extremely interesting and engaging guy, and I'm sure uh, you'll enjoy this conversation. However, before we get to uh, that conversation with Tom, let me just introduce to you Arate Executive and the motivations for the Arate podcast for those people who haven't listened before. Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. And the idea about the Arate podcast is to invite on guests, whether they're CEOs, managing directors, non-executive directors, potentially people from careers outside of the business environment who have achieved great things in terms of their own career and have a chat with them about key achievements, lessons learned along the way, and any facts or interesting information that they can relay that may allow the audience to apply that in terms of their own careers in order to accelerate to achieving their own career potential. And certainly Arate Executive, my business, uh, which I've now owned for almost seven years, is an executive uh, recruitment company. We recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. Uh, our goal is to connect the very best of executive talent with employers of choice to enable both the organisation and the executive to achieve their full career potential. And so we felt that the Arate podcast was a logical extension in order to be able to provide greater value to our community of uh, people within this C-suite and senior executive space. And so this is uh, an ongoing project and we've had some excellent guests on so far and I'm really looking forward to bringing further guests to you over coming months and potentially years. The other thing I would really encourage you to do if you haven't already done so is to join our LinkedIn group, The CEO Incubator, which at the time of this recording has over 1,500 members and allows senior executives and non-executive directors to network with their peers across industry. And it also is the portal that we use for presenting all of our senior executive and board vacancies. So if you join this group, you'll get priority awareness of those opportunities before they go to the open market. It's free to join, and I'd certainly encourage you to do so. There'll be links in the show notes to Arate Executive and the CEO Incubator and other things that we offer which may be of interest to you. Anyway, let me now introduce to you Tom Potter. Tom Potter was the founder, director, and chief executive officer of the highly successful retail food franchise, Eagle Boys Pizza. Over a 20-year period, he grew this business to over 200 stores throughout Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji. With a team of over 4,000 operational staff and annual turnover of over $170 million. In 2007, he was able to sell Eagle Boys Pizza. 
Since that time, Tom has uh, written a book about his Eagle Boys experience called The Eagle Boys Pizza Story, which was published in 2009. He is a public speaker and is engaged to speak at conferences on a very regular basis. And as well as that, he is on a number of boards of food and franchising related businesses throughout Australia and even in the US. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Tom Potter. So, uh, Tom, thanks very much for joining us on the Arate podcast. Uh, it's great to have you along um, at your beautiful home out here and a great location to be having this conversation. Uh, obviously, I've introduced you and your background, but it'd be interesting just for the people who are listening, maybe to talk a little bit about what you're currently doing, what sort of things you're doing in your professional life. Yeah, look, I think um, overall I'm semi-retired. Um, a lot of people still question that. Uh, as to what I'm doing and why I'm semi-retired, but it's a choice that I made a few years back. Um, so other than um, a little bit of consulting, uh, a couple of directorships, and um, um, the odd retail project that I'll be financially involved in with partners more as a mentor, I'm not really going big picture anymore. I'm not out there flying uh, in front of the radar and taking huge risks and um, playing that end of town, I'm probably more of a uh, scaled down operator to what okay. I was. Yeah. So what, what sort of areas are you consulting in? Uh, look, mainly in retail. Yeah. Um, I've got to say that people have tried to um, box me in as a franchising guy, but I'm not. Um, it's really more about retail, strategy and marketing are the three areas that I spend a lot of time and seem to have a lot of people wanted me to come in and work on and I've done some recent consulting work for one of the big banks okay and they specifically asked me to go in and look at their marketing and what they're doing and um, why it's working or why it's not working and I think for them to bring in a third party who has no emotional attachment or ass covering so to cut so to speak and give a, a clear opinion on what they're doing and why mm -hmm. is very helpful for them and how does a consulting gig like that come about? Um, I'm actually getting approached through either third parties or on my website. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I won't name which one of the big banks it is, but um, it's, it's it can flow from anything. And quite often you'll go and do a speech somewhere and uh, someone will come up later and will contact you a week later and say, look, we heard you speak on a certain subject, whether it's corporate governance or marketing or mm -hmm. whatever, and we'd like to have some further dialogue. Mm -hmm. So as much as the speaking for me sometimes um, uh, can be a little bit more than I want to do, it, it certainly helps you keeping your wide network available to mm -hmm. uh, the eyes and ears of the public. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, not too many years ago you published a, a book about Eagle Boys and uh, the, sort of the, the rise of that organisation. Was that a fairly deliberate thing to have written a book and be doing speaking in order to open up these opportunities or has it just kind of happened by chance? Yeah, look, if you wanted to make money by writing books, you'd be a poor, poor person. I, I know from yeah. my own experience. Yeah, I think <laughs> I ended up spending about $75,000 putting that book out. Uh, we have sold quite a lot of copies. I think we've sold nearly 10,000 copies, so right. it's probably almost paid for itself. But I specifically wrote the book to make sure that the history of the business wasn't lost. Okay. Um, for me, it was more about ensuring that it was almost something I could hand on to my son yeah. in later years. Whether that brand is still around um, in a few years' time or not, time will tell. But 
for me, I mean, even now when I go back and read it, it reminds me of things that I would have clearly forgotten. Right. So it was more about a book of memoirs. And I still get people, you know, sometimes you'll sell 40 or 50 of them to conference and they will contact you on the email and say, it really wasn't a lot to do with Eagle Boys. It was more about a story of business and what and what to do and what not to do. And that's what I got a lot out of. So yeah. it's, it's not Eagle Boys centric. It's just you're more using it as an example of the mistakes that were made and the successes that were that were celebrated. And I suppose your own personal growth as well. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't talk about myself so much in that book. It's right. more about my, through my eyes as to what happened. Okay. Good or bad. Um, but I'm sure it reflects that. Sure. Well, here's your opportunity uh, to talk a little bit about yourself today, Tom. So how I like to start these conversations is just basically going back to where it all began, you know, your, uh, your family and your parents and where you grew up, etc. Yeah. So uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, look, the family were um, uh, country-based in Bendigo, um, and Dad was a third or fourth generation um, um, Farmer, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Right. They ended up becoming cooperative farmers, and they were part of the Henry Jones IXL group. Okay. So what did they farm? Um, everything you could put in a can. Okay. It was cherries, sweet mustard pickles, or or um, or tomatoes. In fact, I, I recently, uh, my father died two weeks ago, and I went down to the funeral in, in Bendigo, and the place was packed, and it was still full of people that had either worked for him or been part of that family business that, by the way, closed down in 1978. Right. You know, that was all liquidated and wound up by John Elliott and part of that whole um, situation with Henry Jones IXL Group. Yeah, so that he was always in the food and cannery business and farming, and the mothers, my mother's side of the family were, were, were um, very shrewd um, politicians. Okay. And um, uh, my great-great-grandfather was... Um, longest-standing politician in the history of Australia, uh, state parliament in Victoria. Right. And um, my grandfather followed suit. So, um, yeah, we grew up in country Victoria, Bendigo. Dad moved the family up to Beechworth when we were teenagers. Brothers and sisters. Yeah, twin brother um, who's in business in Perth, elder brother who's retired from business now. Okay. So they were spread all over the, the place. One's in Wangaratta, one's in Perth. So three boys. Yeah. Right. And it was actually interesting reflecting on this at my father's funeral that he was fourth generation self-employed. Right. And born in Bendigo as well. We were fifth generation born in Bendigo and we're all self-employed as well. Okay. So it's an interesting sort of um, um, process that's happened there or, or um, genetic line he's pushed down to us. Do you think that's uh, because when you were growing up, he was very uh, vocal in talking about that as a preferred way of life no right no in fact if anything he was a man of very few words okay but i I just think it's probably um um people ask about entrepreneurs and i don't know if, if the words ever captured right but i think half of what happens to you has a lot to do with the environment right you're in yeah whether it's a positive or negative environment, it's environment. Mm-hmm. And the other half is genetic. Right. There'll be this burning desire that some people go, I don't know why, but I feel like I've got to do this. Right. And it's something that's probably been passed down to them in the bloodlines. So you're a 50-50 on nature versus nurture. I actually think it's both. I yeah. actually think you're in, you're in an environment. I worked for an entrepreneur a few years later, and, and um, as much as I didn't particularly agree with a lot of things he did he he created an environment that i would never have seen before it was 
borrow lots of money, create big ideas, build and grow things, the kind of stuff that I would never have seen under my father who was right. very conservative. Yeah. So I actually think that if you have the opportunity to be in an environment where you work under or work beside someone who thinks like that and learn from them, but also have a certain amount of genetic disposition. Mm. And so you were saying that uh, in your teenage years you moved away from the farm? Well, we moved up to Beechworth, northeast Victoria, where Dad had a small soft drink business. Okay. Uh, and that did extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had that for about 16 years until he retired. Okay. Back in the days when um, small country town soft drink businesses still existed before Coke and yep. Pepsi came along and basically crushed them all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we moved us up there. We uh, went on to school up in northeast Victoria. Okay. And then I left school quite young and went off and did my apprenticeship as a baker, which was not unusual in those days. Right. And, uh, and were you working uh, in your dad's business from as long as you could remember it? Yeah, we'd always spend summers, um, school holidays working down there, which I've got to say was a drag, but it was a sort of a double whammy because the soft drink business would only be busy about four months of the year. Right. And it just happened to be when we were on school holidays. <laughs> you know, so you had no choice. Sure. And, and you'd be down there working on the bottling plant or out jockeying on trucks, traveling, traveling up into the country areas, doing what you had to do. So, you know, it's, we didn't have great school holidays because we always worked, but it's looking back in hindsight, it's not a bad thing. And I've certainly caught, caught up on my holidays since. Uh-huh. And so what was it about baking uh, that particularly attracted you to want to do your apprenticeship there? Oh, I just always wanted to work in food. Right. I think some people are very lucky that they know what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and food for me was... I just loved the kitchen, so I was applying for apprenticeships as a chef, as a cook, a baker, right. anything that I could, and as it turned out, the baker apprenticeship came up and I took it. And uh, is there a part of you that looks back and thinks, wow, if I'd become a chef, then perhaps I could have been a, a celebrity chef at Gordon Ramsay of the world, etc.? Yeah, not really. Um, I'm, um, I got thrust into the limelight in the later years of Eagle Boys. Right. And I never really wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't for me. But it worked. Yep. And I remember our public relations and advertising agency saying, look, the pizza industry doesn't have a personality. You know, it basically has a couple of brands that are big American operators. And if we can get a, a Jerry Harvey of the pizza industry or a John Simons of the um, industry, we actually might be able to drum up a bit of emotion so it worked um, and I would be doing our own television ads and things like that yeah but ultimately I wasn't um, it wasn't my choice uh, it saved us a lot of money mm-hmm. doing that but um, I've got to say I don't think I would have ever been a celebrity chef or a, or a person who would have had their face on television sure just it just wasn't my my um, uh, pre- Preference, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Sure. So uh, you go and uh, do your uh, bakery apprenticeship um, and then looking at your uh, background. So from that point, you went into the Colesmeyer uh, group? Yeah, I did a bit of travel, um, sort of backpacked around Australia and um, worked in different bakeries. And we ended up in central Australia in Alice Springs. Uh-huh. Um, and then back in Melbourne working for the... Coles group, it wasn't Coles Meyer then, it was just Coles. Right. Um, and very lucky to be in the uh, right place at the right time because that was a company that was going through major evolution and, you know, it might seem all ho-hum now, but 
building hot bread shops inside supermarkets back in the 80s was a big deal. Sure. And I just happened to be there to see the first 20 or 30 of them built and the environment was um, infectious. So you had high levels of stress, huge amounts of product to be produced, um, no room for, for um, error and um, an open checkbook. Mm -hmm. So the basic the company was saying, we want to create this amazing point of difference that no one else can get. And they did, they, I mean, they, they, they were years ahead of Woolworths at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think working in that environment was also a wonderful, um, a wonderful uh, reflection of what you could do later when you were building e-boards and you'd sit back and go, well, let's do 10, 15 stores a year and people would go, how are we gonna do that? So really easy, we'll sit down and we'll plan it. Right. And from there uh, into Defiance. Hmm. Defiance was a probably in hindsight a big step sideways for me because I wanted to work more so in the technical services, uh, industrial chemistry kind of side of things where you basically are working with different people in the industry using different products and you would have to be closely liaising with the laboratory in Toowoomba. Uh -huh. My role was as a technical advisor so you'd be going out and spending different time in different businesses all the time. Mm. So by doing that, you're getting uh, wonderful knowledge, learning about other people's businesses, fixing up their problems, um, matching up industrial design problems along with product. I mean, you can go into a bakery and say there's a problem with the recipe and the reality is there's nothing wrong with the recipe. It's the actual equipment they're using or how they're using it. Right. And you needed to have those skills. Yeah. Um, and I eventually obtained those um, and had a couple of good years with that particular company. Yeah. And that was the O'Brien family? Yep. Yeah. So I imagine going into a family-owned business, and from what I understand, a, an interesting sort of dynamic in that family. I know quite a few of the O'Briens. That must have given you a sort of a different perspective on the way the business is done too, I imagine. Yeah. Um, the only thing I can remember clearly about the way that corporate structure was is that they were extremely tight with money. Right. And... Um, they, they wanted an, an, an absolute pound of flesh for everything you did and then they would treat you with almost um, suspicion. Uh, and I was sent to South Australia to work on my own, so I was basically working out of the boot of the car. Okay. Um, and the only thing I had was an answering machine and a, and a desk. Um, but ultimately, um, it was certainly a company that was entirely different to anything I'd worked in before. It was like an old-style... Um, third generation Irish Catholic family that did things their own way. Yeah. Right or wrong? Yeah. It was um, it was certainly an experience. And so it was at that point that you uh, then moved into the actual pizza industry, uh, but working for somebody else. Yeah. What, what was it that attracted you into that business? Um, it was something that had never been done before. So you could always walk into a pizza shop and buy a pizza, but these guys were not just franchising the pizza industry, they were revolutionising it with um, industrialised volumes. When you say, well, what's that mean? You know, a pizza shop in Australia back in that period might have done four or $5,000 a week. Right. And these guys were saying, no, we can do fifteen or $20,000 a week, which is something that had never been seen before. Sure. I mean, whether you look at the superstore concepts now, whether it's the super cheap autos or the Bunnings or whatever. This mm -hmm. was very similar thinking in the pizza industry. Mm -hmm. Just like McDonald's did with burgers. So they asked me to come in and actually give advice 
on industrial design and product. So I was in there helping formulate their product and designing their high output factory bits and pieces. And I found that to be fascinating. And then what I found even more fascinating was this was a business that um, didn't have the high levels of waste that bakeries had. Right. I found bakeries very frustrating that you would get in and fill the shop, shop shelves and then it would rain all day and no one would come in. Right. And you would stand there with a shopping trolley and throw out three, three shopping trolleys full of food and you just, it would make you sick. Sure. Whereas the pizza industry was simple. People rang and you made it fresh to water. Yep. So to me, uh, I actually thought there was a bit of a future in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, was there much attention paid to what was happening in the pizza industry, say, in the US or in international markets? The guy that started this in Adelaide had been over to the US and seen that there was other companies doing it, but in reality, they weren't doing a particularly great job. I mean, Domino's really didn't get some momentum in its business until probably 10 years ago. Okay. Until it was bought out by uh, Bain Capital. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they paid a billion dollars for it and it's now worth 25 billion. Uh, and that's when they got serious about their strategy and growth. So you had a couple of lazy companies in America doing home delivered pizza, but no one was doing it in Australia. So he's coming and said, let's do it. Uh, he went and met with the guys from Silvio's and I think he stole as many ideas as he could from them. I think that that's common record commonplace and Silvio's eventually became Domino's um, and decided to do it under his own brand. So it was definitely a new concept. Where it became interesting was it was designed as a concept only to service capital cities mm -hmm. and it took us a whole bunch of different thinking to go and do it in regional towns. Pre-starting Eagle Boys, or you mean post? No, uh, these guys really didn't have any regional presence at all. Right. So when I went and started Eagle Boys, the whole concept was I needed to sit back, think about how I was going to build micro factories in every one of these country towns and make sure that they were highly efficient and profitable. And the big issue was logistics, mm -hmm. making sure that they could get supply of this highly important, high quality product, um, be it frozen or fresh, um, in places like, you know, Mount Isa and Caratha and Broome and, you know, these these were big challenges. Sure. And so what was it that motivated you to uh, start Eagle Boys? Uh, look, I, there was no question I was going to go into business for myself. Um, and it was just a matter of when. Okay. And when things didn't work out with the guy that I was working for in Sydney, in the pizza industry, it was a crossroad. So then it was like, do I go and find another job for a few years and just keep cruising along? Or is there an opportunity right now? And the opportunity was, yeah, there is. There's nobody doing this in regional towns in Australia. Let's go and have a crack. Mm -hmm. So that was you know, answering your own question. So complete greenfield start. Yep. And, uh, and I imagine that uh, starting that business would have required a, uh, a lot of strategic thinking and also capital, etc. You know, Who are some of the people that helped you at that time uh, to get uh, things underway? Uh, my mother and I put in $12,000 cash each. Right. And she underwrote a $50,000 lease. Okay. At about 19% we were borrowing money back in 1987. I remember that. Yep. Um, and that got us up our first door. Okay. But that first door took me nine months to get open. Right. So and where was that? 
in Albury. Okay. So every little thing that had to be right, whether it was custom design home delivery pizza bags or 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 such, I mean, you were totally starting from scratch. It mm -hmm. was you were ploughing the road. So that took nine months, and that got opened in February '87, and it had very strong cash flow. So six months later, I I had the ability to go and access more capital. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was through a Santa Finance, to be honest with you. Um, and when we opened up the store in Wagga, um, the cash flow in Wagga was like double that of Albury. Right. So we had this really strong cash flow business. Mm -hmm. And from there, um, debt funding wasn't as, as critical. So mm -hmm. it was really just my mother. Uh, she stayed in as a partner for about five years mm -hmm. and then she retired out. And I think one of the things that was bothering her was I continued to roll out and roll in serious amounts of debt for the right. growth of the business. Yep. A lot of people would say, well, why do you need debt to grow a franchise business? But we did. You know, um, some do, some don't, but mm -hmm. we did. And um, she was in her, hitting her 60s, so she was happy to retire out then. So she was the main financier. Mm -hmm. There were other options for me to bring capital in, but um, I didn't need to use those. Mm -hmm. And what about from a, a mentoring and advice perspective? I know that certainly later in your career being involved in things like YPO, et cetera, but at that time, did you have a, a circle of people around you that were the brains trust, so to speak? Uh, it was quite difficult um, because there, there wasn't a lot of places to turn to for help, whether it was Chamber of Commerce or whatever, because you're in regional areas. Um, I mean, if I had my time over, there was a couple of particular guys that I know lived out in the regional areas that were absolute geniuses at what they did. And if I had a tap on the door and said, can you help mentor me? I'm sure they would have. Yeah. One guy in particular who's, you know, to this day, one of Australia's most successful farmers, a fellow by the name of uh, Fletcher, based out of Dubbo. Um, but reality was, I was doing it on my own. Uh, the old man was pretty helpful. Okay. Uh, my mother was pretty helpful in different areas. Mm -hmm. She was more of a strategic marketing sort of thinking person, whereas the old man was more of a uh, financing and numbers. But look, no, I'd say that was a real lack of um, issues in the first five years is actually having people to sit down and sit, say where we're we going and what are we doing. I think that was a mistake that I made through lack of knowledge. And so perhaps looking back on that time now, in hindsight, <clears throat> what were some of the things that you did early on that you would do differently if you'd have the opportunity to do it again? Well, I put on a board from day one. Okay. Or at least have three advisors that would help me strategy, structure the growth of the business. Yeah. Um... That would probably be the single biggest thing I would have done differently. Okay. Um, bringing in, raising capital and growing it harder and faster probably would have been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest success in the pizza industry outside ourselves has been Domino's in the last few years and they've tripled in share value since we sold or since I sold the company. But, you know, the big thing for Domino's was they had massive access to capital mm -hmm. and that was um, definitely an issue for us. Right. You know, when you've got someone like Jack Cowan, who's Australia's probably most successful food franchise baron, mm -hmm. basically the owner of Domino's, that was certainly a huge um, difference that they had. Mm -hmm. And so um, Eagle Boys was a 20-year journey for you. If you look over that time at some of the key milestones, uh, some of the achievements that you're most proud of, what would they be? Look, um, I think New Zealand. It was an incredible success. 
And the reason it was such a success was we sat down and we militantly put a plan together. Mm -hmm. We'd made mistakes in Australia. We'd been caught out in regional growth. We'd been we'd been caught sandwiched in between price wars, particularly with very unstrategic companies like Pizza Hut and Pizza Haven, who drove most of their franchisees broke. Right. So you've got corporate guys sitting there making decisions on price positioning and strategy, which were completely wrong. And five years later, Pizza Haven was gone. Yep. And Pizza Hut's still going. They're still closing stores. So that was a huge issue in Australia. So you're fighting a war that doesn't make sense, started by someone else that's not aware of what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. It's pretty dangerous stuff. Mm -hmm. New Zealand, we've gone, we know who our competitor is. It's only one player. We know that we've got to create a new market. We've got to have our marketing strategy defined. We've got to have enough stores on the ground. We've got to geographically grow. I mean, that's a huge issue. Sure. You go into Christchurch first, Wellington second, Auckland last. You build every country town along the way. You own the media in every region. So we got it right. So how, how um, far along was it in terms of Australia? Where, how many stores did you have in Australia before you decided? Well, Australia started in 87 and we started New Zealand in 94. Okay. So we probably had 50 stores in Australia. Right. Getting, getting caught in the middle of a, a crazy price war. Right. I mean, Domino's weren't even around then. You yeah. Know, that, that was still Silvio's. So it was more a case of, you know, the temperature's a bit too hot in Australia right now. Uh, that was some motivation for going to New Zealand? No, no. Um, our growth and our business in Australia continued just as it would have whether we were in New Zealand or not. Mm. New Zealand was like replanting a virus in another country. That's right. what franchising is all about. Okay. So as long as you've got an infrastructure that doesn't distract what you've already got, mm-hmm. and we didn't. We brought all the Kiwis to Australia. We trained them all up. We had a master license operator in New Zealand running a separate office under a separate um, strategy. And we put one guy in New Zealand to be the key pivotal person on everything. Right. So it made no difference. All I'm saying was, as things were going, having its ups and downs in Australia, Mm. we weren't distracted by the fact that we were having enormous success in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was more about, oh, there's a massive opportunity in New Zealand. I Mm -hmm. think we should jump on it Mm -hmm. now. Okay. And And how quickly did it take you to really get a footprint in New Zealand? Oh, we became the third largest known brand in New Zealand behind Steinlager and the All Blacks in five years. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of case studies written on the whole thing. Okay. So it was very, very quick. Once the momentum hit in about the third year, like, you know, your Christchurch and your Wellington and then going through all the country towns was one thing. But then once you hit the big city, and you're already two thirds of the way through your march. We became very, very well known very quickly. Very aggressive marketing, um, highly radical marketing, strategic, mm-hmm. um, tactical marketing. People were seeing us on the news. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very easy to be hot when you're hot. Mm-hmm. It's like when Virgin came and launched here. Sure. You know, yeah. there's a lot of fluff and bullshit in that. But the reality is, you take the opportunity to to be known when you can. Absolutely. And it, it's best, what percentage would New Zealand have been of your overall turnover? Oh, wow. Um, Australia was probably doing 80 million, New Zealand was probably doing 45. 
Wow, so gee, that's it was a, that quick. Okay. Oh sure. yeah, right. Yeah, it was it was a huge success. Okay, so that's ninety four that that starts. Ninety five through to ninety eight when we saw really big momentum in New Zealand. Okay, and you know the the economy was good there too. Yeah, they were coming out of some pretty shitty times. They'd sort of cleaned up their union problems. They um, had no issues with taxation. You don't pay capital gains tax in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, and very aggressive banking processes. Uh-huh. And so, okay, so what was the, the next key milestone after that then? Uh, look, the, the, the big issue for us, which was a real challenge driven by my chairman and board, was to differentiate the brand a whole lot better than we had in the past. Mm-hmm. And we set about finding a point of difference. And it took us quite a few years, a lot of research, and a lot of money, and a lot of technology stuff ups and we eventually invented the two minute pizza mm-hmm. and built drive throughs mm-hmm. And that was um, an instant success, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the drive throughs um, It had to be marketed hard and hard market marketed clearly, um, but that was our beachhead as far as our point of difference went reaching into sort of 2001 onwards. Okay. And by that stage, you mentioned you obviously had a board in place. Mm-hmm. We'd bought a board into the business in 1995. We'd bought in a venture capital investor between 95 and 2004, I think it was. Um, and part of doing that wasn't necessarily about bringing in a board, but when I got back from Harvard in 94, I went straight to strategic advisors and said, look, just been off to university for my first year. We need to have a board. Yep. We need to get our plan clear, not what we hope, what we, what, what, what we want to do and why we want to do it. So we brought in Kendall's. Mm-hmm. Kendall's helped us structure our plan, put our business plan and strategy together. And then the next step was we need to go and find a quality board of directors to help us achieve our results. So the big driver for me was coming back from university in that first block and saying, to take this company to the next level, we've got to get serious about our corporate governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was the process. Mm. And yet I suppose you're a self-made guy, you're the master of your own destiny. Suddenly you've got this external board which is starting to create some rigor around decision-making and, and uh, no doubt some accountability. What, you know, how did, did you find that you embraced that quickly or was there some uh, you know, resistance to really engaging in that process from your own perspective? I think if it ever got to a stage where it was going to be a political game, um, you can quite easily just turn around and say, we'll save ourselves a couple hundred grand a year and get rid of the board and do whatever the hell we like. Yeah. But I really liked having them there. Mm-hmm. I relied on them for advice. I felt I slept well at night knowing that they were there for me. Because our board just weren't used as a board. They were used as mentors, advisors, and consultants. Mm-hmm. I'd quite often be walking through the building because I think we had about 100 staff. And um, you'd run into, say, Bill Proud, who was our director and oversaw marketing. And I'd say, what are you doing here? oh, we've got a uh, strategic marketing research meeting today, and I wouldn't have even known about it. Right. But he'd come and sit in those meetings with our marketing team. Okay. So to have your directors literally hands-on involved in some stages, and a lot of people go, oh, that's not the way to do it. Well, I actually thought it was perfect Mm -hmm. 
because they were totally aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. There was none of this conduit of, I mean, if you completely rely on your CEO to be feeding information to your directors, it is a very dangerous situation if you've got a CEO who's either covering his ass or, um, or otherwise doing things he shouldn't be. Mm, it's interesting because I met up with a CEO that I placed in a very significant not-for-profit and caught up with him on Friday. And uh, you know his view was almost completely the opposite. I've got a board that are getting heavily enmeshed in my operation and uh, you know I'm really trying to keep that separation between strategy and delivery. And, and so it's interesting that your perspective uh, is very much that you wanted these people that engaged in your business. Yeah, I mean, if the board are um, getting involved in things they shouldn't, um, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, if the board have got a very clear brief, and if they're chosen properly in the first place, <coughs> I mean, I look now at what's happened at 7-Eleven mm -hmm. and ask myself, what was that board doing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, just one question. This is a, I don't know, they're probably returning over a billion dollars. Wouldn't one of those directors be saying, do we have an annual list of what we audit from external sources, such as our human resources practices? Because mm -hmm. I'd be saying as a director, look, I, I want you know three or four audits done every year. I want to make sure advertising funds are audited properly. I want to make sure that um, a HR company comes in and specifically looks at all of our industrial relations practices. Because me as a director, I want to be protected. Absolutely. And those are the kind of things that um, weren't happening. And <coughs> I directly blame all the directors. Mm. To me, it was a bunch of people asleep at the wheel, mm. snoring loud, mm. and all of them. Well, I think the, you know that's a you could have a whole one-hour conversation just about that mm. and the fact that uh, a lot of these boards are put together not based on a skills matrix, but based on a who does the chair know and like and. Uh, you know, want to look after as part of their uh, clique rather than people who can necessarily make a valued contribution to the strategy of the organisation. And that can be the case. <clears throat> I've served on a couple of boards where they brought me on specifically for my skills. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I became very unpopular. In other cases, as much as they didn't like what they heard, they sh shook their heads and said, you're right, and yeah. that's what we've paid you for. So, sure. you know, it's, it's a bloody shame that public companies... Um, can have that situation where people are getting jobs on nudges and winks instead of oh, complete. the right people coming in. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know people uh, have a perception that that kind of uh, practice is disappearing, but sort of my, my own experience is that uh, it's alive and well, thank you very oh, much. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, talk to us now about you know what led from that point to eventually you exiting. Um, what were some of the things that were going on externally and also within your own mind uh, that uh, led you to go down that path? The business um, would swing in and out of profit every few years. Um, what reasons that was happening? Um, probably a mixture of, uh, we ran a business that was probably top heavy. Uh -huh. I look at some of the franchise businesses now and they run at half the staff we used to operate. So we had a very good infrastructure service system for our people and we never compromised on it. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, we were also having our best year ever when I sold the company in 2007. Okay. Making super profits and franchisees were really getting some momentum with what we'd spent a lot of five or six years 
putting in two-minute pizza drive-throughs, uh, solution stores in the airports. I mean, the business had created three or four unique models. Mm -hmm. um, and my chairman sort of said to me, where do we go from here? We've sort of climbed quite a few mountains. We've spent a lot of money, a lot of time. We've got these drive-throughs working. We've cracked it with the airports. We've got some real momentum. Do you want to dig in, borrow some more money, go another five years? Do you want to bring in some VCs to lower the risk? Do you want to go public? What was happening now is you know, it's a $100 million plus turnover business and it was reliant on one person. Right. You know, and I was single bloke, no family. Um, and if I dropped dead, it was, well, where do we go from here? Sure. And the insurance companies and banks would certainly stand over me every year and make sure that I had a substantial amount of insurance and key man and so forth. But after ultimately having some discussion with the chairman, he actually said to me, sometimes prize fighters never know when to step down. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's not that I don't think you can continue to run the business and evolve because we've proved that we can do that. The question is, do you want to? Do you want to go another five to 10 years? Because by then you'll be in your mid fifties. Yeah. Um, and what I'd found was, as much as I was enjoying the ride, I was suffering from high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I was starting to suffer more and more from exhaustion and tiredness from running the business. And the question was, could you step out of the business for six to 12 months and have a holiday or have a break? Um, and there was a big question mark over mm -hmm. that. I mean, it, it, it was running well. It was running better than I'd ever run before. Or do we pick a time where the business is running really well and sell it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I conferred with my YPO buddies, I conferred with my board, and we chose to sell the business. Originally, I wanted to stay in as a 30 or 40% shareholder, bring a VC company in, and then probably shoehorn myself out two years later, mm -hmm. regaining more value out of that remaining 30 or 40% and deferring tax and everything else that goes with it. Sure. Um, but ultimately, the company that came in said, no, the way we do things is that the CEO and the founder goes. He sort of cast too much of a shadow over the new guy. So, but um, I, I did remain in as a shareholder mm -hmm. um, for another two years. And then I exited after that two years because I, I, I certainly disagreed with the way they were taking the business mm -hmm. um, and um, had no say in what was going on. Mm -hmm. So... The decision was made, and I still think to this day it was a good decision. I probably would have doubled the value of the business if I'd have waited another two years, but to me the money wasn't the issue. It was more about, I've had enough, and if I stick around here, I'm probably going to get to a stage where I'm going to dislike the business and lose the mojo for the culture of the business. So I, was right. just, I thought I was doing it a favour, yep. stepping aside. Okay. And what, um, you know, I mentioned that uh, giving up this amazing organisation that had been your brainchild and, and uh, your life's work, uh, you must have been quite an interesting sort of headspace that you were in at that time. How would you describe that? Yeah, a lot of people, I think, freak out or sort of sit bolt up right out of bed after two or three weeks and go, what have I done? Yeah. But I, I was past being wanted. Right. I was past being called at all hours of the night to talk about problems and other people's issues. I was past the whole 
Um, I'm the CEO of founder of Eagle Boys. Here's my ego. Yeah. I didn't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to slip off into the darkness of the night and not even be missed. And I wasn't missed. I mean, I packed up and took off and did some round the world holidays in the next six months. And, you know, you really find out who your mates are when you're selling your business. And you've got about five of them. That's it. Right. Other than that, you know, the, the, the employees, um, I mean, I went out of my way to ensure that half a dozen of my long-term employees were um, part of the buy-in and I financed three of them. And, you know, in reality, probably only three of those six remained loyal mm-hmm. to, you know, a friendship. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, I understand that. Yeah. They're loyal to their families, they're loyal to their sure. income, they're loyal to their mortgage, and I get that. But... Um, I think if I had I had a massive ego and I needed to keep my name attached to the business and and wanted to be driven by that, I'd still be there. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was I couldn't have been happier mm-hmm. that I was finally out of debt, that mm-hmm. I was finally in a position that I didn't have to be um, working all the time and responsible for you know a couple of hundred families and mm-hmm. their incomes. Okay. But uh, certainly you went on to do other things. So what became your motivation for picking the sort of opportunities that you wanted to get involved in post-Eagle Boys? Was it motivated by just an intellectual challenge or did you still have sort of financial drivers or what are the kind of things that... I think we always have financial drivers. We want to make money. Um, but I took... You know, three years, mm-hmm. I think I, no, sorry, it would have been two and a half years uh, before I went and started up the bakeries, which was a test trial yep. of a concept. And that test trial was all about building drive-through bakeries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't about building a hundred of them, it was about building six of them around southeast Queensland. Mm-hmm. Crusty devils. Yep. Right. Um, but before you start building drive-throughs in a bakery, you've got to test every other part of the business model. Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating. I loved that because we were back in the test kitchen. We were formulating products. We were swapping recipes with people all around Australia. We were designing and building. And it was a great retail model. Yeah. When it opened, people loved it. Yeah. Uh, but there were two buts. Mm-hmm. One of them was labour laws are killing this country and they certainly made it difficult for us. The other one was the access to drive-through pads became um, a huge issue because... At the same time as us saying, okay, let's look at some drive-through pads, the drive-through coffee industry went through the roof. Right. And any drive-through site that came available, they snapped them up. Okay. So you basically got a fantastic horse and no racetrack to take it to. Right. And that's what happened. Sure. So after you know four years of running that, you sat back and you go, does this business have a future to go and build drive-throughs and so forth? And the answer is... Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, and a non-drive-through model just wasn't something you were keen to pursue. The non-drive-through <clears throat> model has been wonderful. Right. But it wasn't where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've learned now that if it's not where you want to be, you sell it and move on. Is that because you're an innovator or is that because you've got a particular thing for the whole drive-through It's experience? both. It's got to be an innovator and it's got to have the required return on investment. Right. And the required return on investment in the drive-throughs was always going to be there mm-hmm. with the kind of model yeah. of volumes we needed. Um, and otherwise, uh, it was okay. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was, a, it was a good profitable business, but it wasn't the powerhouse that I pictured that 
I wanted it to be. So for me, it was like, okay, I'll move on from this. But you still, you've still got a couple of bakeries, is that right? Or? I just sold out of those about okay. a year ago. Okay, yeah. right. And my partner who was running with me, he's taken them over and he's, he's actually improved the profits since okay. I sold, which is, I gotta say, I'm delighted with. Oh, that's good. So it's become more efficient. Okay, yeah. sure. And what are some of the other things that uh, you've been doing? Uh, or that, I mean, did you have a strategy in place, which is in terms of, okay, life after Eagle Boys? Yeah, I did. Right. I actually sat down and had a list of everything I wanted to achieve as far as um, this is how much of my capital I'm prepared to risk. Yeah. This is the amount of human capital I want to put into it and time. Um, I want to have a look at an industry that I think is recession proof. I had, I had a checklist. Okay. And once I started going through that checklist and then started looking at different businesses that I would be considering, they can easily cull themselves once you cross-check them. Yeah. Uh, and I still use that list to this day with quite a lot of people that come to me for advice. And I'd go, okay, let's have a look at a personal and financial checklist that the business must achieve. Mm -hmm. So I applied that to the bakeries, um, which worked just fine. And since then, um, as much as I'm having a bit of a look at one business at the moment, I'm more interested in doing what I do, which is strategic advice, uh, directorships. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, um, I stepped down as chairman of Burger Urge 12 months ago, and um, I'm also uh, not involved with federal government. I was um, heading down that road, but there was a change in um, leadership, so that um, changed things there. So if anything, I'm probably looking for one or two directorships, yeah. um, which allows you to sort of achieve the lifestyle that you want. So you, you're not working hard, but you're working smart. Mm -hmm. You're doing your two or three days a week, um, working in that particular zone. And of course, the still do a bit of public speaking as well. Yeah. That's easy to fill a week doing that. Sure. Um, well, if anybody's listening to the podcast, and this is going out to an audience of CEOs and non-executive directors and so on, and, uh, you uh, potentially have a, an appetite to have a conversation with Tom. I'll uh, uh, make sure in the show notes, uh, Tom's LinkedIn profile is there, etc. Yep. Um, <clears throat> so when you think about yourself uh, in terms of your personality, what, what do you think are some of the things about you that uniquely enabled you to build such a successful business uh, and essentially be the driving force behind that brand for such a long period of time? Look, I think that uh, there was never any question about that I was prepared to take a big risk. Uh -huh. And I was never uh, never any question about the fact that I was prepared to work extremely hard. Um, and if you're in a situation um, where you're happy to work 15 hours a day to make ends meet when things are tough, you'll always get through. Yeah. So I think that those two um, qualities, particularly when you're young, mm -hmm. it helps you when you open a business when you're 23, you've got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. But I did. I had my mother's money to lose, mm -hmm. which, which extra motivated me. Sure. Um, to make sure that we didn't. Um, and I just think, yeah, I was, I was a natural risk taker. And um, that was uh, what got me okay. my start. Yeah. And obviously, uh, from a professional development point of view, uh, you didn't start with a business qualification, but you went and did some uh, study at Harvard. And... Uh, being part of YPO, what, what are some of the other things that were important to you in uh, developing your more formal um, business acumen? 
The first investing thing I did was I signed up for SMI, Self Motivation Institute. Okay. And then I went over to America and did that PSI course, which is all about your personal development. Uh-huh. Uh, I did that in Hawaii. Um, the Harvard course was the turning point for me between 94 and 97, greatest thing that ever happened to me. Right. Uh, joining YPO in 94 um, was a massive um, help for me because I was based in Queensland, had no family up here. Uh-huh. So you've now got yourself a handful of people who you know and trust that you can rely on to give you um, unbiased advice. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, from there, I morphed into bringing in a board of directors and then ultimately a chairman and mentor by the name of John Kozik, who was extremely helpful to me uh, right through to when I sold the business. And we're still great much of this day. In fact, we're better friends now, right? I think, than we were when we were chairman and CEO. Yeah, I, I interviewed Ian Clug for the podcast recently. He's chairman of Brisbane Marketing and uh, a few other businesses. And he said, as chair, he said it's very important to be friendly with the CEO, but not be friends. Yeah, he's yeah. right. Mm. He's dead right. And we used to travel overseas to conferences and do all kinds of things, but we never sat in the bar and had a beer. Right. You know, it, it was always that was the way it was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to have lunch with him today, actually. And okay. I uh, still thoroughly enjoy his company. Right. And yeah. it's a different relationship now. And so what are the things now that you're doing to continue your professional development and education? Yeah, I'm back um, back um, actively in YPO, which is the, the older chapter, WPO, uh-huh. uh, in a regional forums in that particular factor. And I actually think probably my biggest learning area now is on the speaking circuit. Right. You know, every week you're out there meeting with CEOs of companies. Now, last week was fascinating. I met with a CEO of a company who was the top of their game worldwide, but more so in Australia than anywhere else. And he said, my biggest job is to maintain um, momentum in the space that we own, which mm-hmm. is, it was Harley-Davidson. Right. right? Yeah. So I speak at the national conference two weeks ago. Okay. Two weeks before, I go and speak with one of the car rental companies and they're in shit street. You know, right. they're sitting there saying, we've got Uber bashing us on one side. Yeah. Although we are still a highly profitable business, mm. um, we know that there is a tsunami coming and we're not sure where it's from. Mm. And one of their biggest challenges, all their franchisees are still very profitable. Mm-hmm. So when you've got people who are still making good money, they have great difficulty in thinking about change. Yeah, sure. Yet I sat in the back of the room for the entire session that day and one of the challenges they put to all of these franchisees is, where do you see the industry in five years and what have you got to do to change? And by Jesus, there was some good thinking, Mm -hmm. some radical change thinking from a lot of people who are in their 50s who are naturally conservative. Mm. So if you're doing six or seven speeches a month, and you get to sit in and hear the sessions and hear what people are saying and talk about what's happening in their industries, there is nothing more educating mm-hmm. than being able to literally walk into the, the brain's trust of entire industries and go, I'll just sit here all day and listen. Mm. I suppose because it's real time, isn't it? You know, you're not waiting for it to be in a book and then the book doesn't come out for six to 12 months. So you're hearing it as it's happening right there and then. Yeah, it's, it is absolutely fantastic. I mean. I went over to Hawaii to speak at the National Conference for Optus, mm-hmm. and I was gobsmacked at how big that company is, how how um, aggressive it operates. You know, I always thought of Optus as a bit of a sort of second cousin to 
Telstra, but when I got over there and realised it's actually, it's probably bigger than Telstra off the top of my head. Sure, and um, uh, probably got more dynamic leadership as well, I imagine. Well, it's all extra ex-Telstra guys running Optus, I think. Yeah. I think I sat in the car with the CEO on the way back to the airport. Right. But, you know, once you turn up to a conference and you realise the, the size of the business and what goes on and you meet the chairman, mm -hmm. you walk away with an entirely different picture mm -hmm. of what you really thought that business yeah. might have been. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting you said, so here are these people sitting in the room and you're asking, or they were being asked, where do they see the future five to 10 years for now? Um, where's the future for Tom Potter five to 10 years from now, do you think? Uh, probably chairman of a couple of companies. Okay. Um, public or private, doesn't really matter to me. Not really relevant. Dynamic businesses, maybe, maybe not. I think business is going through change or business is trying to maintain market leadership just as dynamic as businesses that are having to take massive amount of risks. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll probably have one or two other businesses that will be run and managed by partners. Mm -hmm. um, businesses that are you know, good cash flow retail businesses that I can weigh in my time mm -hmm. and energy to achieve an outcome um, and still be playing golf once or twice a week. Right. Um, and making sure that um, I'm not going to be the richest guy in the graveyard. Sure. So still plenty of petrol in the tank. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are some of the things that you do outside of work to, to keep you uh, young at heart and, and uh, full of uh, enthusiasm for, the, for your business life? Uh, look, I don't, I don't really need to be arcing myself up on enthusiasm for my business life. Um, I probably spend the vast majority of my time now spending it with family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a young family, um, and I mean this this last weekend was a classic. We we just relaxed here on the property, hung out with the kids, swam in the pool, and uh, ate pizza on Saturday night cooked by me. You know? right. So I, I I really enjoy and 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 treasure that kind of stuff. Do you still weigh every ingredient when you're making it for yourself? No, no, no. Just slap it all, just <laughs> slap it all on there. And, right. Uh, cook. I don't even make my own dough anymore, I've got to admit. I, all right. That's all too bloody hard. But um, no, I'm, I'm really, I suppose, approaching that, that stage in my life where I like to hurry up and slow down. Sure. Yeah. And uh, to round out this conversation, because uh, I know you've got other things you need to get on with, for those who are listening in and the predominant audience being aspiring and incumbent C-suite executives and non-executive directors, and I'm sure a, a fair number of uh, business owners as well, um, if you had to distill your advice into a few key points uh, to enable them to accelerate their own career to their full potential, what are some of the things that you'd say? Look, I think that um, irrespective of what position you are in a company, the strategy has to be questioned. It has to be absolutely pristine. And it bothers me still to this day that senior executives and people in senior management roles will follow a strategy they may not believe in, mm -hmm. but they've been told that's the way it's going to be, like it or not, mm -hmm. only to see things fail later. Mm -hmm. um, so I think more and more people need to be accountable to asking questions as to why are we going down this road. Mm. Um, I certainly had probably half my senior executive had the ability to come in and question. Mm. But that's an interesting point. I think uh, 
unless the, uh, the CEO and the board actively encourage uh, you know, that level of communication. Two-way feedback, yeah. Because there'd probably be a lot of people who'd just simply be too scared to ask those questions. Yeah. You know, if I... You've got to create an environment. Yeah. And we would we would bring in external advisors for a two-day strategy meeting, and of that two-day strategy meeting, I'd only spend one day there. Right. And they'd say, well, let's let's work our way through where we want to go, what we want to do now. Let's, let's just get Tom out of the room for the next four hours mm-hmm. so I can get more dialogue without necessarily anybody feeling intimidated by him being there. Yeah. That kind of thing. Okay. So it's, it's never easy, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly bothers me. And like, like I said, that, that 7-Eleven thing that happened recently where you're sitting back and you're saying, we're senior management questioning it? No. Mm-hmm. The board questioning it? No. It's like, Jesus, you know, these people need to man up mm-hmm. and uh, do the right thing by everybody. Sure. And so other than, you know, that piece of advice, what else? Um, Look, it just depends on which field you're in. I think a lot of people, um, I mean, are you talking about self-employed people? Are you talking about... Well, I think, think, uh, you know, uh, both really, but probably the predominant listener will be people who are not self-employed. But, uh, you know, I think more in terms of just... uh, uh, some of the personal attributes necessary to achieve success. People management. Um, we're too busy trying to place square pegs in round holes, filling gaps, promoting the wrong people, and screwing up, uh, fixing up all the screw ups later. Mm-hmm. And I think if we actually sit down and pick our management team like a football team, mm-hmm. this is the absolute skills we need to get this job done Mm. you will get the job done three times faster with half the grief Mm -hmm. and i actually think that if there was a number one role that a senior manager has to play is they accept that they're now a coach yeah they're not a player Mm -hmm. they've got to pick the team they've got to coach the team they've got to get inside the team's head um, find out what motivates them and then let them go and play the game. Mm. Let them get on with it. Mm. Um, and very fine lines in that area. So, And, you know, I think that it, it's a hard skill to develop. Um, very hard. A, a lot of people talk about it, but actually to get expertise around being a great coach and building a vision and taking people on the journey and so on, that's hard. You know, I know that I struggle with that. Um, yeah, you need guidance, mentoring, help in that particular area mm. as well. All that being said, I'll also go as far as saying there's nothing more motivating than a public hanging, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that when people screw up and continue to screw up and bosses go soft on them or let them continue down the road, it's very hard for morale of the rest of the team. Mm. And the rest of the team wants to see a boss stand up, man up and go, right, enough of this shit, you're gone. Yeah. And and people go, great, that's the kind of leadership I want. Yeah. I used to work for a guy and his saying was, hire well and fire fast. Yep. And uh, I've, uh, I think there's, uh, that's good advice. All right, well, look, Tom, I really appreciate your time. Before we wrap it up, any final things that you wanted to add or anything we haven't discussed that you, uh, you wanted to make comment about? No, um, I think I mentioned earlier that I've got a website, tompotterspeaker.com. Yeah. dot com dot au. Any any links through that to LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever's there, and uh, that's how I can be contacted if required. But no, other than that, good to go. Oh, good. And uh, we'll certainly put a link to uh, your book in the show notes. And uh, 
and uh, a link to uh, other things which are relevant to our conversation. All right, well, thanks. I really appreciate your uh, participation and have a wonderful afternoon. No worries. Thanks. Well, I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Tom Potter. I must admit that I find these stories fascinating where here's a guy who, with a small investment from his mum, was able to turn that into a brand name, which is extremely recognised both in Australia and New Zealand, and enabled him to create true financial freedom and to, at a fairly early age, then exit and look forward to new and exciting opportunities to develop his career, both as a non-executive director, a public speaker, and who knows what the future could bring. Uh, Tom spoke to me about some of his uh, current endeavours and business opportunities, and I've got to say that uh, they're very exciting indeed. So watch this space and see what Tom Potter gets up to over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. So thanks for your attention. I look forward to uh, engaging with you again in future Arate podcasts. In the meantime, have a fantastic week and a great afternoon today. Bye-bye.